if you're able to, if you'd stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. And we'll begin in verse 42. Paul has, has just finished speaking. Verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. Father, this morning we trust in you. We trust in the work of your Spirit to unify our body. We pray for a, a unity at Bethany Community Church that is not based on our shared culture, our shared background, our shared opinions about uh, various insignificant matters, but we pray for a supernatural unity that is, that is wrought by your Spirit himself a unity based upon our, our commonality, our, our union with Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. People are drawn to conflict, e even within a church. I wrote that sentence on, on Tuesday or, or Wednesday of this, this past week, and by yesterday afternoon noon, I was reading another story about a church embroiled in conflict, a church that I, I, I've benefited from their ministry greatly, a very prominent church. Pastors have resigned. People have left. It's just another church in turmoil. And my, my heart was just heavy yesterday thinking about what the people in that, that church are, are going through. People are drawn to conflict. And I'm sure many of you have have grown up in churches or experienced conflict within the church and, and just, just suffered from that. Whenever Whitney and I moved here to Peoria for me to go on staff at Bethany Baptist Church, when, when we got there, uh, Rich Burkle told us that he was getting ready to go on sabbatical. And when my wife heard the word sabbatical, she got really nervous because she had grown up in a church background where every time a church announced that a pastor was going on sabbatical, that, mean he was about, that meant he was about to resign or get fired, right? By the way, I'm going on sabbatical in Thanksgiving, uh, eight weeks. It's good. I have no plans to resign. 
No plans to get fired, right? Uh, so by God's grace, and so that's, that's happening. But that, that's kind of the church background she grew up in. And I grew up in churches where there had been conflict and church splits. And when I was a teenager, our church went through this horrendous church split. And, and you've, you've experienced this as well, many of you. I was reading an article this, this past week by a pastor who had gone through what he called a devastating church split. He had resigned as senior pastor, and he was reflecting on some of the things that he had learned, and he wrote this. He said, you know, in a church, there are people who are different from each other in so many ways. They're different ethnically, culturally, economically, politically, socially, spiritually, sinful, and diverse people. So people who are both sinful and diverse often create storm conditions that can challenge the unity of the church. In other words, in a church, disunity is easy. We can do that, no problem. Disunity is easy. We're different from each other. We have different opinions about things. We come from different church cultures or, or just cultures in general. We can do disunity. And we can do unity with people who are like us and think like us pretty easily as well. What requires the work of the Spirit, a work that only the Spirit can accomplish, is true, Christ-centered, God-exalting unity. We need God's help to create that type of unity in a church. I'm grateful by God's grace for the, the peace that exists within our church over the last 13 years. God has been very, very kind to our church. We haven't experienced major disheaval or disunity. And quite frankly, that is not because of something the leadership has done. It's not because of something that the people have done. It's because of a unity that God and only God has granted us. It's the work of the Spirit creating the unity that only God can create. Here's the here's central idea. If, if you're a young person taking notes and your parents have said to take notes, here's kind of a statement you want to write down. Here's, here's the main thing that I want us to think about together this morning as we look at this passage. Everyone, all, who place their faith in Jesus Christ are fully included in the promise of God and are one in Jesus Christ. Luke, in this portion of the book of Acts, what he's trying to do is he's trying to explain to his audience, look, here's how the Jew and the Gentile came together, and here's how the Jew and the Gentile are, are one in Christ. Here's how the Gentile came to receive the promises of God. And what he's going to tell them here, we're going to see it again as we get to Acts chapter 15, as he helps, the, helps describe how the early church understood the unity, is look, Everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ is fully included in the promises of God. There's not two people of God. There's not separation among the people of God. We are all included in God's promise, and we are one in Jesus Christ. Now, why is it so important to understand that? We must understand this because it's not you, it's not me who creates unity it's something that God himself gives us, and only God can give us, and it's given to all who are in Jesus Christ. And our responsibility as a church is not to, to manufacture unity, but to live in obedience to the unity that God has already created among us. The unity that God has brought about through the blood of his son, Jesus, is precious, and we must preserve it. What we're going to do is we're going to see how the Jews reject this gospel truth, 
and how the Gentiles receive it. So first of all, let's, let's look at this. Let's look, talk about how the Jews reject the gospel. And look here in Acts chapter 13 at verse 42. And remember, Paul has just finished giving this, this message. He's talked about God's promise in the Old Testament. He's talked about all the things that God did to, to fulfill that promise and to bring it about throughout the history of humanity and specifically God's working through his people Israel. And now he begins to talk about the fulfillment of the promise in the person of Jesus Christ and how people rejected, the Jews in particular rejected this gospel truth. He's finished this, this message. He gives them the responsibility to respond to the gospel message and a warning if they don't respond to the gospel message. And then he concludes, and what happens? It starts off with a very promising response. Verse 42, the people are going out, and it says they begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Now, I've had some sermons that I think went pretty well. Uh, I, I don't know if I've ever had a sermon where people are just like, Daniel, please, please, next week you gotta come. I mean, you people know my email address, right? Um, I know you know my email address. Um, but you know, the, there's, there's, it seems like if this happened to me, I'd feel like, okay, that message probably went pretty well. People are just begging Paul to come back, preach to him, preach to us the, the next week. And so, he's, so that, that seems like things are going well, right? And also, not only that, as the meeting breaks up, what else does the text tell us? It says, this, it says that as the synagogue meeting breaks up, the Jews, many of them at least, and some of the devout converts, and I think that's describing Gentiles who have converted to Judaism. They've gone through all the steps necessary to be fully Jewish. They are following Paul and Barnabas around. They're, they're talking about these things. And Paul and Barnabas, the text tells us, look at it, it says, they spoke with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. And what does that mean? It means, okay, you've, you've responded rightly to God's truth. You've recognized that the Old Testament is God's covenant truth with his people. You've, you've done well. Now continue in the grace of God and recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things that God has promised. That's, that's what they're urging them to do. So it seems like things are going pretty well, right? Well, the next week comes. And verse 44 tells us almost the whole city has gathered to hear the word of the Lord. In other words, there's a lot of people there. And in this city, in Antioch, Pisidia, there are a lot of Jews, but there are far more Gentiles than there are Jews. So what does that mean for this crowd? It means that this crowd is made up of a lot of Gentiles, not just Jews. And so the Jews who are part of the synagogue see this, this crowd gathered, and it says they become jealous. And that word jealous means, it's, it's the same word we get the word zeal from. And sometimes it refers to like a zeal for the law. So these Jews... They see the crowds, and it says they're, they're jealous. And I don't think it just means like they were jealous that Paul was more popular than they were. I think it also means that they are upset that there is an offer to these Gentiles that they can have the same standing with God that they do without having to become Jewish. In other words, I don't think that the people who are coming to the synagogue and are Jewish and see the Gentiles there, I don't think they're against the idea of these people becoming eventually included in the people of God. But they had a certain mentality about how that would take place. Like, yeah, you can become included in the people of God, but you need to adopt the same type of dress that we do, adopt our culture, celebrate the same feasts, eat the same things that we do, 
observe the same days and stuff. And then you also, men, you need to get circumcised. And so there's a, a process by which you can become included in the people of God. And what's Paul's message? Paul's message is you don't have to do any of that stuff. None of that is necessary. What you need to do to become a part of the people of God is to recognize who Jesus Christ is, that he is the fulfillment of God's promise. Trust in him and, and you're in. You're, you're part of God's people. And the Jews are like, no, 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 no. Hold up. That's, that's incorrect. And what does the text tell us? It says that they begin to contradict what was spoken by Paul. It says reviling him. That means blaspheming. And it's, it's not unclear if, there's, if it's talking about blaspheming Paul or blaspheming God, but essentially it's the same. Paul says, here's the gospel. And the Jews say, no, 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 that, that cannot be true. It's, it's not true that all the promises of God are fulfilled in the person of Jesus and you just need to believe in him to have eternal life. That message is not true. Paul's wrong and they're, they're blaspheming ultimately God and his gospel message. Now, Paul then responds with, Paul and Barnabas respond with bold words, right? It says, that they spoke out boldly, and that doesn't mean harshly, but it means strongly speaking the truth. And they said, look, it was necessary, it was prophetically told that the word of God would be spoken first to you, but you have thrust it aside. The word is like they've, they've shoved it away from themselves, and you've judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. In other words, you've rejected the gospel message. And so, we're turning to the Gentiles, and this is what the Lord has commanded us. And he, he quotes uh, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 49, verse 6. I've made you, and he's, he's talking there to, about the Messiah. Paul and Barnabas are applying this to themselves. God's made us a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, what, what do we see in these verses, 42 through 47? Here's, here's what we see. The Jews are rejecting the gospel. They're rejecting the message that salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. They are absolutely rejecting that gospel message. They are driven by a cultural, ethnic, elitist pride. And so they reject the idea that a person can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. They, they reject that and say, you know, you, you can't just become a part of the people of God. You, you need to become Jewish before you can become a part of the people of God. And then you can talk about the Messiah. The Jews reject the gospel. They continue to reject the gospel throughout Acts in the New Testament. And that rejection of the gospel is tragic. It's tragic. Paul in Romans chapter 9 through Romans chapter 11, he kind of wrestles with this. He begins in Romans chapter 9 and he's saying, you know, it, it's hard to understand how did, how did this happen? How did we get to a point where the Jews have rejected the gospel? He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And he comes into chapter 10 and he describes how they've rejected the gospel, but this is prophesied. And then he comes in Romans chapter 11 and he says, okay, but, but there's a, this is a partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And eventually all of Israel, I think he's talking there about ethnic Israel, will be saved. There's going to be a coming revival whenever ethnic Israel responds to the gospel. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. 
But at this moment, this moment where Paul is here in, in Pisidia, Antioch, what's happening? The Jews refuse to believe that you can be a part of the people of God without being Jewish. Here's, here's the principle that I want us to think about as we think about these verses. Here, here's the principle. Your union with Christ, your union with Christ, not your cultural or your ethnic identity, your union with Christ is how you participate in the new covenant. This, this new covenant is the new covenant that Jesus Christ brings, and, and, and how, do you, how do you get to be a part of that? Well, it, it's not who you, what culture you come from, it's not what ethnicity you are, it's, it's based upon your union with Jesus Christ. Now, there's a couple of implications here. One implication here is that our gospel message must call people to come to Christ, not to come to our culture. So if I'm, if I'm proclaiming this gospel message, and we see this throughout the book of Acts, if we proclaim the gospel message, our, our gospel call is not, hey, come become like me. Our gospel message is come to Christ. The Jews don't understand this. They, they don't understand that you can become part of God's people without becoming part of them as well, culturally. We need to believe this truth, brothers and sisters. An idolatrous love of your culture, an idolatrous love of your culture will render you useless for gospel ministry. If you, have an, if you make an idol of your culture, whatever culture that is, it's going to render you useless for gospel-proclaiming ministry. Be it a large nationalistic culture that causes you not to consider people from other nations and countries as valuable to God as your nation or country is, or be it your, your subculture that causes you to be indifferent to the needs and the sufferings and the, the gospel need of people in other subgroups. Whatever, whatever culture you're a part of, an idolatrous love of that culture is going to render you useless in gospel proclaiming ministry. Love the people who are part of your culture. Love your culture. Be excited that God has, has placed you where he has, but don't make an idol of it. What does Jesus say? Jesus, as he talks about discipleship, says, look, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whatever culture you're a part of, ultimately you have to come to the point where you say, look, compared to the, to the greatness of Jesus Christ, I hate my culture. I, I hate compared to the, the glory of being in Christ and united with Christ, all this other stuff is, is rubbish compared to that, as Paul would say. Another implication as we think about this truth is that our our cultural and ethnic diversity within a church won't undermine the gospel, but proclaim it. The surprising truth that the Jewish Christians have to come to, and we see this throughout the New Testament, that they get surprised, that the surprise is that a Gentile doesn't have to stop being a Gentile to be in Christ. A Gentile can continue to speak whatever language they were speaking before they came to Christ. They can continue eating whatever they were eating before they came to Christ. They can continue observing whatever days they were observing or not observing whatever days they weren't observing, and they can still be in Christ. That is shocking to the Jew. It's shocking to us as well sometimes. We oftentimes think that whatever, whatever cultural makeup we're a part of is, is like the good one, right? 
Like we're the ones that are closer to God. And yeah, God loves other people, but man, he loves me and my culture. Uh, the staff right now is getting ready to, we're, we're taking some strength finder uh, tests and things like that to kind of help us think about what strengths God has equipped us with and, and how we can use those things. And uh, the, one of the elders was sitting down with me and there's like 34 different different attributes or strengths and it ranks, you know, what your strongest, what your strongest strength is and what your weakest area is. And they're kind of talking with me about this, elders talking with me about my strengths and like discipline was real near the top. And for those of you who know me, you're like, yeah, okay. And then uh, adaptability was really, really low. Like they just go with the flow, right? And the elder was talking to us, like, now you realize that that's not a these aren't moral issues. In other words, a person who puts adaptability higher than you isn't doing something that, that's morally wrong. And I said, yes. I agree, you know. But, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of better, right? No, it's not, okay. The, the, the different, now there can be sinful aspects of all different strengths, of course, but, but in terms of what you, you know, you value discipline over relationship, you value sometimes relationship over discipline. There, there's sinful aspects of all of this, just like with any culture, right? You don't have to become more like me in order to be united with Christ. You need to become more like Christ to live in obedience to God. Here's, here's the reality. Our, our ethnicity, our cultural identity is, is not our ultimate identity, but a means through which we glorify God. It's it's not our ultimate identity. If it was, then, then being Jewish would, pre, would be pretty important. But again, Paul says in Philippians 3, it's all, it's all rubbish, the things that identified him in his Judaism. But I, I can use these things to glorify God as I prefer others, as I, as I recognize biblical truths, as I, I think about different things and, and, and pursue the Lord in, in obedience and so forth. Think about what happens in a, in a marriage relationship. You have a husband who comes from one type of culture and a wife who comes from another culture. Maybe the, the wife comes from a culture where saving and, and hard work and these things are valued and the husband comes from a background where generosity is, is highly valued and greed is warned against. And as they come into this marriage relationship, God and his grace causes each to help the other see biblical truths about, about how to engage and how they view their money and how they're generous they are and how they Work, I mean, just all sorts of things that God can do. But here's, here's again the, the thing that the Jew had to understand that they didn't understand that caused them to reject the gospel. It's my union with Christ. It's not my cultural identity. It's not my ethnic identity. It's my union with Christ that's how I come to participate in the new covenant. Here's the second thing to look at then. Let's look at how the Gentiles receive the gospel. The Gentiles receive the gospel. Paul and Barnabas have just told the Jews, look, this is what was prophesied. The gospel had to come to you first. Now it's going to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles have grasped the gospel message. The, the Gentiles, that's why there are so many at the synagogue. They've heard what Paul said at the synagogue the, on the previous Sabbath. Paul and Barnabas have taught, look, you don't have to go through all these, these hoops in order to become a part of the people of God. You simply need to be Place your faith in Jesus Christ. And so all the Gentiles are flocking in the synagogue going, no, what in the world is all of this about? And now they've just heard 
Paul and Barnabas say these strong words to the Jews and talk about their inclusion in the people of God. And it says in verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and they were glorifying the word of the Lord. So they, they hear the truths of Scripture, and they are rejoicing in them. And then there's this amazing, amazing phrase here in verse 48. Do not miss it. It says that as, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Here in this, this group, this multitude of people, every single person that the Lord had appointed, had, had sovereignly ordained to, to come to faith in Jesus Christ, does so. Now you think about that in conjunction with verse 46 earlier. These, these two truths just, just come into such, such perfect harmony. Those who reject the gospel are, are responsible for the rejection of the gospel, but at the same time, all those that God has ordained to receive the gospel message will receive the gospel. That word ordain means to appoint or to assign. It's, it's in the passive voice. It's not the people appointing themselves. They were appointed. God did the appointing. It's an incredible claim here about the sovereignty of God. Just as we saw in Paul's sermon, just as we saw that God has done all the work to, to bring a Savior, to bring his people out of Egypt, to give them the David, to give them the Davidic covenant, all, all that God has done, he continues to do. He brings the Gentiles into salvation. Now, what I want us to see is that this is not some sort of secondary plan by God. He doesn't say, well, the Jewish thing didn't work out, and so well, there's a bunch of Gentiles around, maybe I'll, I'll save them. No, this was part of God's sovereign plan from eternity past. They're brought into the people of God. Again, Isaiah 49, 6, I will make you as a light for the nations that, they, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. What I want you to grasp here, and, and, and this, is, this is so important as we think about the foundation for unity at Bethany Community Church. This unity that God creates in his church is not a superficial unity. This is something that God has ordained that, that Gentiles would come in to be a, a part of, of his people. Psalm 87. In fact, turn in your Bible. This is one of my favorite psalms. Psalm 87 is a very beautiful psalm. As we think about the nature of the unity that God himself creates. He's talking about Jerusalem, the psalmist is, as he begins Psalm 87. He says, on the holy mount stands the city he founded. It's, it's Jerusalem, right? Verse 2, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. So there's something special about the, the gates of Jerusalem. And why are the gates special? What, what happens in a gate? A, a gate is the access point to a city. So God looks at Zion, he looks at Jacob, and he says, I love the gates. And why does he love the gates? It says, glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. And then verse 4, among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre and Cush. What's happening? These gates of Zion are the means of entry point through which people from other nations are coming in to the city. And they're, they're entering in the city, and it says that as they enter, 
this is what God is, this is what the people are saying. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. And so here, in, come, in through the gate of Zion, into Jerusalem, comes the Philistine. The Philistine, the, the hated ancient enemy of, of Israel, they come in through this gate and God says, Zion born. They're, they're my people. They're, they're one of us. Now here comes the Ethiopian, Zion born. They're, they're part of the people of God. The Cushite, the, the person from Ty, the Babylonian, Zion born, Zion born, Zion born. The Lord records as he registers the people, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. It's all my salvation, all, all the, the joy of deliverance is found in Zion and Zion only. It's, it's a beautiful picture of, of adoption into God's family. Now, the Gentiles respond with joy. Go back to Acts 13. The Jews continue to resist the gospel message. It says that the word of the Lord spreads throughout the whole region, but the Jews incite the devout women of, the, of high standing. They also incite the leading men of the city. They stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they're, they're driven out of that, that district in which they were preaching. And yet, what continues to happen? The word of the Lord continues to, to spread. Paul and Barnabas, as they leave, they shake off the dust from their feet against them. They're, they're proclaiming judgment, God's judgment against them. They're saying, look, we're, we're separate from you. We're, we don't have a, a part with you. you. You reject the gospel, you've rejected us. Our, our unity is not cultural. It's based upon your acceptance of the gospel message. But the disciples are filled with joy, verse 52 tells us, and with the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, by the way, as they go into Iconium, it's not as though they're no longer having any ministry to the Jews. As they go into Iconium, they're going to go back into a synagogue. And so it's not that they're done witnessing the gospel to the Jews. It's look, they're just saying, look, these Jews are not accepting it. We're spreading the message to the, the Gentiles as well. And you're going to see that pattern as, as they travel. They start with it in the synagogue, and then they go to the Gentiles, Jews, and then the Gentiles, continuing to proclaim the gospel. Now, Luke's point here. Why is Luke telling us all this? Luke's point here is to help us understand, to help his audience grasp the oneness of God's people. How, how did these Gentiles and Jews become united in, in the church? And the answer is in, in the person of Jesus Christ. Both of them are, are brought into this family of God, to the one people of God, by, by faith in Jesus Christ. It's very important for us as we think about unity at Bethany Community Church to, to understand that. I grew up in a church tradition that, that many of you grew up in as well, I, I'm sure, that really drew a, a sharp distinction between Israel and, and the church. And, and there were some, some good things about that tradition, some, some good biblical emphasis of that tradition. They taught, and, and rightly so, that, that God keeps his promises. They rightly taught that God's uh, promise to his people, to the ethnic Israel, I, I believe is going to be 
uh, continued to fulfill. I think that's what happens in Romans chapter 11. I, I believe that there's a, a coming millennial kingdom, and, and many of the God's promises to ethnic Israel are going to be fulfilled in that coming millennial kingdom. But, but the problem with this theological, some, some of the voices within this tradition that I grew up in and some of the strands of this tradition, there were some, some unbiblical emphasis in it as well. Seeing this, this distinction, they believed that these promises, some voices talked about how these promises were going to be fulfilled apart from the church. In fact, I have a friend right now who's, who's in a church where there are some uh, hyper-dispensationalists, and they are teaching that there are two gospel messages even today. There's a gospel message for the Jews, and there's a gospel message to the Gentiles. In the, in the church that I grew up in, there was a, a, a very, very godly teacher, very, very wise man, and uh, just said a lot of good things. But one of, the, one of the really, I think, unfortunate things that he taught was that this distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles is, is so profound that even in the millennial kingdom, they're going to be like living separate from one another. He, in one of his books, he taught that there might, and he said it in a very gracious way, but he taught that there might be like a, the new Jerusalem might be this, this moon kind of orbiting the earth. So during the millennial kingdom, God will be dealing with the Jews and like the Christians will be, resurrected Christians will be on a moon and, and maybe they can travel and do some, but you know, it's just like this, like you got to really keep them apart at that point, right? I don't think that's a, a biblical way to understand the people of God. God has created, has united his, his people in, in the church. There aren't two people of God. There's, there's the, the people of God who are, are, are one. That, that's the whole point that Luke is making here as he, as he talks about the, the nature of the church. He wants his audience to understand you don't have to become Jewish to, to become a part of the church. And once you are part of the church, both Jew and Gentile are united in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and failure to grasp the oneness that we have in Christ is going to cause us to treat that oneness cheaply, casually. Here's what Paul would say in Colossians chapter 1. Listen to this. For in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And so God in his grace has sent his son Jesus Christ and it's in the, the body of, of Christ suffered and, and died on the cross for us that we, we now can be re reconciled to God and, and to one another. And, and so to, to draw a distinction in terms of how we come into relationship with God between Jew and Gentile or between this ethnicity and that ethnicity or whatever two groups you want to put in the blank, to draw a distinction how we have access to God and the type of unity we have in the church, I believe is to undermine this truth. He's going to go on in Colossians 3 as he, he talks about this unity. He's going to say in verse 12 of Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. Just to take a moment and, and look around this room. It feels a lot better to get everyone's eyes off of me. It's very, you have no idea how disconcerting it is to stand up every week. But, but just, you just look around the room and, and recognize, okay, I, I'm different than, than a lot of these people. I'm, I'm older, I'm younger, I have different values in, in some areas of life in terms of, of tertiary issues, different, different favorite sports team or job, education. My unity with these people is not based on, on shared third-tier issues. My unity with the people in this room who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ has been bought and secured, paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are now one in Christ. And we must do all that we can to, to walk in that reality. Should I forgive someone who slighted me? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Should I take into account a wrong suffered? I mean, they really messed with me. Seriously? Do we understand the, the theological nature of the unity that, that Christ has created here? The Jews in, in Acts 13, they don't get it. You need to become like me in order to be, become, become a part of the people of God. The Gentiles know they receive the gospel and they understand the truth. Here's the principle that I want us to see. Every person God has appointed to salvation, here's the principle, every person God has appointed to salvation will be saved by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel message and that's the, the nature of the unity that we have. Every person that God in his grace has appointed to salvation, by appointed I mean he's from eternity past, has said, okay, these people are going to be part of my family, and I'm going to, I'm going to secure their salvation with my, the blood of my son, God the Son. Every person that God appoints to salvation is saved by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They receive salvation, and they receive all of its blessings, and there are some implications. One implication is that everyone who trusts in Christ is God's child. Romans 8, what does Romans 8 tell us? It tells us that it's by the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So one implication, all who trust in Christ are God's children. A couple implica implications here. So I'm either, I'm either born into God's family, I'm adopted into God's family, I mean, whatever the nature is, I'm, I'm, I'm part of that family. I've been brought into that family. As Romans 11, Romans 11 describes it, grafted in if I'm a Gentile. And, and yes, I do believe that God has a plan for ethnic Israel, but it's not going to be separate from the church. I believe it's going to be as, as Israel is, is part of the church through Jesus Christ. It's not separate from the new covenant. It's, it's part of the new covenant. Another implication here is that all who trust in Christ should be humbled by their inclusion in the people of God. I mean, as we think about the reality here, it's, it's all that God appoints to eternal life receive the, the gospel here. And there's, there's nothing they do. There's no works they do. In fact, we, we see from Paul's message that it's always been God who's bringing about his promised salvation. And so if we're part of the promise of God, I mean, our pride should be obliterated 
in light of the reality that it's God who brings about salvation. We also see here a, that all who trust in Christ, another implication here is that all that trust, who trust in Christ should call others to trust in Christ with, with boldness and with confidence. I, I proclaim the gospel not because I believe that if I say it the right way, if I say it in the right context, I say it the right tone of voice, then, then people are going to receive the gospel. I, I proclaim the gospel with boldness and with confidence that God himself will be at work. And, and God will bring people to salvation to trust in Jesus as I proclaim that gospel message. And I also recognize that all who trust in Christ are one in Christ. I, I have unity with others based upon this, this truth that we are in Christ together. This union with Christ is real. It's, it's precious. It's valuable. All who place their faith in Christ, all who place their faith in Jesus Christ are fully included in the promise of God and are, are one in Jesus Christ. Let me pray and we'll prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper together in light of this reality. And in fact, before I pray, before I pray, let me, let me read a, a portion from Ephesians to kind of prepare our hearts here. I want to encourage you as, as we get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper and as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together to, to first of all, just celebrate our unity, to, to celebrate together our, our unity. We have been brought together by the Lord Jesus Christ, and let's Let's worship God in that. And then secondly, what I would encourage you to do as I read from Ephesians here, I would encourage you to ask the Lord to, to reveal ways in which you have, have failed to preserve and, and promote the unity that, that Christ has called us to participate in. Maybe as, as you think this morning, you think, you know what, I, I've been engaged in, in gossip about my brother or sister in Jesus Christ. I've been saying some things about other believers that are, are just of completely inappropriate. I think about, Jeff mentioned that in his prayer earlier, that, that we would ask God for forgiveness for that. And I would encourage us to do that even now as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming our unity in Christ. And if I've been gossiping, I've, I've been undermining that unity. I've, I've been working to destroy the uni unity that God has, has created through the blood of Jesus Christ. Or, or maybe... Maybe just some, some bitterness we've had in our hearts. I haven't, haven't said it to anyone, but man, I've, I've just been really disturbed by, by a fellow believer, and, and I've, I've been unwilling to let go of bitterness. Or maybe I've just been checked out. I've said, you know what? I've got too much going on in life to be involved in, in other people's lives and, and building up the body you haven't been preserving the unity of Christ's church. I, I don't know how it would manifest itself in each life, but be, be thinking through that. Let me, let me read this passage from Ephesians chapter 2 as we think about this reality that Paul and Barnabas are teaching in Antioch here. Here's what Paul would say, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, you strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, 
you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, for Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both, both Jew and Gentile, both this and that, whatever the, the two things are, reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Heavenly Father, we recognize this morning our union with one another in this room. Our union is based upon the work of finished work of your son Jesus that we celebrate this morning as we observe the Lord's Supper and remember the new covenant. We come into this new covenant not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of, of your son Jesus Christ and, and his work. And Father, if it were up to us and our work, we would surely, surely be left outside of your people. But Father, even though you and your grace have brought us into this, this covenant, you've made us one, we do things even, even still that are works of the flesh, destroying the unity that you have created. Father, forgive us. And we even just take a, a moment now to, to confess the things that we have done to destroy the unity of your church. We ask your forgiveness for our critical spirits towards one another, our lack of grace, our lack of forgiveness, our lack of willingness to speak loving truth when needed, for sharp tongues, for divisive spirits. Lord, we confess these things to you. We rejoice in your forgiveness. Rejoice in the reality that we are, we are united not on the basis of our works, and we continue in our unity not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of your grace. And we recognize your grace at our church, that you have been kind to us in preserving the unity of, of your people, not because of, of our goodness, but because of your goodness. We continue to beseech you to be gracious to us. Continue to allow us to repent of sin. Please continue to convict our hearts. Lay, lay our hearts open and bare before you. Convict us through your word. Help us to grow and change and to love. Reflecting the reality that we are truly in you. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. If you prepare to partake of the bread with me, The night that he was betrayed, 
Jesus took the bread and after he'd given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And if you prepare to partake of the cup with me, you and I are, are part of the new covenant. And we are part of the new covenant, not because of our ethnic or our cultural background, but because of our union with Jesus Christ through faith. The same way after supper, he, this, in the same way after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so we proclaim the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ until he returns. Father, we trust in you. We trust in the finished work of your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.